Welcome to the Parenting Well podcast with Parent Engagement Network. I'm Dr. Shelley Mann, your host, and today you're listening to Parenting Well, where we know that parenting well is challenging and that all parents are the best parents they know how to be. We firmly believe that the foundation for raising healthy, happy youth is for us as parents to fill our own well with useful, reliable, credible information, tools, and strategies. Having a well of resources leaves us more engaged, educated, and empowered to support our children in being strong, resourceful, confident, and resilient in the face of life's many challenges and adventures. So let's fill that well. Today's well source is Dr. Dan Siegel. Dr. Siegel is one of the world's leading neuroscientists and psychiatrists. He's a graduate of Harvard Medical School and a professor at UCLA School of Medicine. He's also the founder of the field of interpersonal neurobiology, and he's written many books. He's the co-founder of the Mindful, Air, Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA and the executive director of the Mindsight Institute, which is an educational organization that offers online learning and in-person seminars focused on how to develop Mindsight. Welcome, Dr. Siegel. Thank you, Shelley. And you can call me Dan, and it's an honor to be here. Thank you. So I personally have followed your work for a very long time. Uh, my background is in human development and family studies, and I've got a more than 25-year career working with families. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be here with the Parent Engagement Network and to share with our parents and, and professionals who work with young people. I also love the fact that your recent book was called The Power of Showing Up. Um, that has been a question that I have asked every single person that I interview. It's usually one of the questions I leave them with as a professional or a parent, how do we best show up for our young people? So I'm excited to have an opportunity to talk to you about that more in depth as we go through the interview here. So let's just jump in. Since our listeners are predominantly parents or people who work with young people, they're very invested in being good parents or good stewards to young people. So if I were to ask you, what is the number one thing that you think people need to bring to young people? What would you say that is? Well, there's a word that sounds really simple, and it's the word presence. And presence means you bring your whole self into a connection, a communication, a way of really um, joining with your child. Um, by basically showing up and being present. So that's the word I would use. It would be presence, parental presence. Yeah. And that is somewhat challenging in a normal sense, but also maybe a little bit more challenging given the day and age we're living in where we're tempted by screens and phones. And I guess that takes an intentional goal to really show up and be present. Yeah, I think that's right, Shelley. I think um, the notion of intention is really an interesting word because when you have presence, when you show up, what you're doing really is you're allowing yourself to bring an intention to say, you know, I might be in this body, but in the connection of this body called Dan, let's say if you were my daughter, my daughter Shelley, then I would have the intention of really joining with you together so that we get the illusion that we're separate because we have skin encased bodies but actually as a parent you're given the opportunity to bust through that illusion and help your child experience a we and it's that belonging as a we that's really at the heart of what we mean by secure attachment it's what we also mean by an internal compass it's what we mean by a growth mindset it's what we mean by the notion that 
you can have resilience in your life while being kind and connected. So all these are both inner traits of ours that we can cultivate in our children and also ways of just being on the planet. How do you choose to live your life? What are the skills you were given that give you the choice of showing up? So really parenting is this incredible opportunity and it's amazing how simple it is, even though that doesn't make it easy. So at least we can articulate it in simple <laughs> words that can guide us, especially when we're tired or feeling out of sorts, um, when we're facing a pandemic and social unrest, when we're facing racism and social injustice, when we're facing the real frightening um, reality of environmental destruction on our planet. These are all things that can make us very agitated. And in that state of agitation in us as parents, we can disappear. We can try to distract ourselves with just watching television or trying not to feel our feelings. So presence is yes, being there for your child, but it's also being there for your own inner truth. And that can be hard when times are hard. So learning the skills that I try to teach with my various co-authors, Mary Hartzell and Parenting from the Inside Out and Tina Payne Bryson and the other parenting books, or really looking directly towards the adolescent period. All these books are really about presence. Mm, yes. And you mentioned detachment, which I think that is such a fundamental building block for healthy and optimal development. And I, I like how you talk about attachment in the sense that even if you did not grow up in an environment where you yourself had a secure attachment, you can still show up and be with your child in a way that provides that opportunity for them to develop a secure attachment. So I'd be interested in what you would say about what that means to have a secure attachment and how parents can support that. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I'm trained in a research field called attachment theory and research. So there's a formal academic thing to the word attachment, even though some parenting approaches actually use the word attachment but they're not related to the study and science of attachment. So just let's be really clear about that. So as a scientist who's trained as an attachment scientist, a researcher looking at parent-child relationships, what we know is that the way the interactions we have with our children unfold, and when I say we, I mean not just the mother, but as Sarah Hurdy, the anthropologist, beautifully writes about it's mothers and others. So human beings evolved to have more than one attachment figure. And that should really be embraced as the truth of our human species, but also take the pressure of what I hear a lot of young mothers hear is, oh, I heard to be really a good attachment mother, I'm supposed to be the only attachment figure. That's absolutely not true. That goes against what our human evolution has been like for probably over 200,000 years. So we want to take a deep breath and realize we were meant to grow up in community. Mm -hmm. That children are perfectly capable. In fact, they're evolved to have more than one attachment figure. Could one of them be the main attachment figure? Sure. And we call that the primary attachment figure. But then there are a few selected others, trustworthy, older individuals, usually adults, who a child turns to for safety, for being seen, that is my inner world is known by you, for being soothed when I'm distressed, 
And then in this relationship I have with you as one of my attachment figures, I have security, which is kind of like an internal sense that I feel good around you and I feel like you've taught me that I can be part of a we and that together I can have my stress soothed and that I can go in the world knowing that you're always there even when I'm not around you. So I kind of internalize that security and that's what a secure attachment is all about. Yeah. And as someone who then internalizes that security, they go into the world with more resilience, more ability to, to solve problems, to self-regulate all of those important factors that make us uh, develop into healthy, happy people. Right. Exactly. Um, that's what the research shows when our attachment is secure with our primary attachment figure, then you get all those positive things you're saying. Right. And, and I saw that this is something you've studied literally all the way back to when you were first in school, um, this concept of mindset and recognizing that um, when a physician was with a patient and they were focused only on their physical wellness, uh, the patient didn't recover the same way as they did when the physician was able to connect with them on, emotion, on an emotional level. Yeah. Um, and from there, you've developed and done a ton of work in this area of mindset. Could you share with us what mindset is? Yeah, well, the term mindset is a word I made up um, just as you're saying, when I was in school, uh, it was so distressing for me to see my teachers in medical school treating people like objects, not like someone with a center of subjective experiences, the scientific way you'd say, it, but like your feelings, what mattered to you, the meaning of things, the story of your life, the relationships you had, all these things you can put under the word mind right? So heart, head, your gut, the feeling of being alive, the sensations, the fullness of the vitality of life. We're putting that under the word mind. Some people use the word mind for intellect. That's not how I use the word mind ever. But just we need to know what the words are used as. So I dropped out of school because I didn't want to become like those teachers. And I didn't really have any other role models for physicians. So that was my set of examples. So I said, forget it, I don't want to do that. So I went to go do other things. And in the course of you know that time away, I thought about it and I thought, well, I could go back and actually maybe look into this business of seeing the mind, even if my teachers didn't. And so I said, but how am I gonna remember that? It's, you're busy as a medical student. So I made up this word mindsight. And when I went back to school, it was like my secret little protective lifesaver so I'd see my teachers acting in ways that were really unempathic. And I would say quietly to myself, that's a mind sightless professor. Let's study how not to be by seeing how he or she was behaving. Um, and so over the next two years in medical school, I, I found a few physician teachers who had the mind sight skill at least revealed. You never know if they had or not. I wasn't interviewing them. Um, but uh, most didn't. And when I went on to pediatrics, I did notice like what I had noticed in medical school is that when you had a clinician who really tuned into what was going on in your subjective life, how are you feeling that I've told you this lab result? You know, what does this mean in your life that this is the diagnosis that you may have? What does this mean for your relationships? You know, what, how about the story of who you are, your identity? your sense of self, your belonging, all that under the word mind. 
And I found that when there was a clinician who did do those things, there was a kind of thriving, even in the face of the same diagnoses, that a medical diagnoses that a patient might have. So I transferred over to psychiatry because I thought, you know, why not go into the specialty that really focused on this mind ability? Um, and that's a whole nother journey in, it, in itself, what happened in psychiatry. But the bottom line is that's where the idea came from. And it overlapped later on with um, notions of what's called theory of mind or reflective function or mentalization or mind-mindedness, psychological mindedness, constructs that would come out around the same time or later um, that from a research point of view, you could then study. And essentially this, I don't think this is overstating the case, you know, Mary Ainsworth, who's one of the founders of the field of attachment research, she actually said it, that the, the parent who can have a model of the mind of their baby will have a baby who thrives. Mm. And I only saw that much later on through the writings of my teacher, Mary Main, who was Mary Ainsworth's students. Um, and anyway, it was very exciting to, to think that the founders of the field of attachment actually had this in mind, even though they didn't name it, they were kind of trying to describe it as the essential feature of secure attachment. Mm, very interesting. Yeah. And Mindsight has three characteristics, right? Which is the insight, empathy, and, um, and, and integration. Inter and integration, right. yeah. So this is where it's a little different from theory of mind or other things like that. Because what we say is that, you know, once you sense your own mind, which is the basics of emotional intelligence. And once you're really interested and in learn the skill of sensing another person's subjective life, which is the base of social intelligence, then you're able to create a very specific um, unfolding that we're just going to name as integration, that looks like it's the basis of health. So we go from just the ability to see the mind in self or another individual in another body. I don't like to call that uh, the other, because in <laughs> fact, we're all deeply connected to one another. So there's the inner aspect of mindsight, there's the inter aspect of mindsight, but then there's this thing called integration, which is really defined as things being enabled to be different from one another, like you from me, but then we link in compassionate, respectful communication. You can express your own opinion, I can express my own opinion, and then we link together by communicating effectively and compassionately with each other. So that would be a relational integration. And when you have relational integration in attachment, what you have is security. And in the brain, in the child, you actually get integration in the brain, which is kind of the basis of every form of resilience. So um, if you like this kind of thinking, you know, I wrote a graduate school textbook called The Developing Mind. You can get the third edition. It's 500 pages long thousands of references. If you say, why did Shelley bring Dan on? This is all kind of goofy. You can read the science behind it, but every one of the parenting books, I think I've written six now, every one of those six books, you know, is based on this science called interpersonal neurobiology, where we bring all the frameworks together into one perspective and the developing mind would be kind of a summary of all of that. That's great. And, and as we talk about integration and we talk about how a parent or someone working with a young person can interact with, with their child or the, the child they're working with, um, you know, some of that, and this is related to what you talked about in, in showing up, some of that is how you first address their emotional state before you go into talking about 
what needs to be corrected. And I think as a parent, I've got two kids grown, grown at this point myself. I think it can be very challenging, especially when you're triggered or you, or you see the situation as something that needs to change quickly. It can be challenging to slow down and to show up in that way that you, that you can be calm enough to recognize where they're at and then have the skills or the questions, the way of interacting with them that brings that out. What would you recommend for parents who are trying to be in this space of mindset and, and really connecting emotionally first with their child? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because emotionally in the developing mind, you'll see emotional um, life, emotions in general, we see a shifts in integration. So it's beautiful, Shelley, what you're saying. So emotional presence, emotional connection means you're present for the integration that's unfolding, where you're allowing your child to be different, but linking to them. So this is where integration is really, you know, when you really start playing with it and sitting with it and feeling it inside of you and, and within your relationships, you really see the value of it. So what I would say is that um, there are two books I wrote. Uh, one is called Aware, which teaches you in depth uh, the science of presence and the practice that will teach you how to have it more. And then we took that book and made a like a, a handbook uh, to guide you through how to actually do this basic practice called the Wheel of Awareness. And it's up for free on our website. And, you know, we've had lots of people um, stream it and do it. And what parents tell me when they do it is that if you can just picture this metaphor that, you know, everything you can be aware of is like on the metaphor of the rim of a wheel. You can move a spoke that's a metaphor for attention to different aspects of the rim, like what you hear, what you see, what you smell, taste, touch. You can move it to the sensations of the inside of the body, what you're feeling as you breathe, your heart, your intestines. You can even move it to mental life, like thoughts and memories and emotions and stuff like that. And then you can even move to a fourth segment of the rim, which is our relationships. But there's, as you get into the practice, there's a, a, a next step, which is really kind of exciting when you get a chance to do it, is you bend that spoke around into the center of the wheel, which is the hub of awareness the experience of knowing. So if I say, hello, Shelley, you've got both the sound, hello, Shelley, but you have the awareness of the sound. And now we represent that awareness in the hub. And when people learn to distinguish the hub from the rim in this very simple practice, what is the empowerment that emerges is that if you're having a really rough day and there's emotions, let's say on that third segment of your rim, you've actually learned the skill to access this sanctuary of clarity and calm in the hub without having to fight against all the tumult and the storminess and the hard emotions that are on the rim. So now you drop into the hub essentially, not forgetting the rim, but just not being flooded by the rim and basically, this is what presence is. And as you've cultivated this ability, you show up for your child because now you're not lost in all your thoughts and judgments and worries and concerns and frettings. You're actually in this spaciousness. And, you know, I did this with t literally tens of thousands of people before the pandemic, you know, sent a microphone around, recorded all the responses. It looks like from that hub, 
no matter what culture you're in, whatever your educational background, it seemed independent of that. It seems like a human process. In that hub is connection, open awareness, and love. Mm. Now that spells the acronym COAL. I've used COAL in a different way in other settings, but let's just use it that way here. So imagine when things are getting tough in the world, or things are tough in a particular interaction with your child or adolescent, and you can go into that hub where coal is the state that you are accessing of connection to your child, open awareness to whatever your child's experiencing and love. And now your child picks up, you're coming from the hub, not the rim of reactivity. Why are you doing this? You're now coming from the hub. They feel it. They are transformed by your presence. And when you get into the aware book or becoming aware workbook, What's so cool about it is you actually learn the science of consciousness in a very accessible way. So you realize, wow, I can actually live a life, not just when I'm doing the wheel of awareness practice for, you know, two dozen minutes or something a day, but actually I live my life from this spacious place of connection, awareness, and love. Mm. And what a great way to have people show up for you, right? <laughs> totally. Well, I mean, this is the thing about it. And, you know, we have a whole community uh, at the Mindset Institute where, you know, people are doing the wheel regularly. And so then you start interacting with people who are living from this hub, if you will. And um, it's been quite, quite remarkable. Yeah. You know, I have to share with you a story because um, I was probably halfway through your book about showing up. Um, my 23 year old is currently living with me and we had had kind of a, a distant interaction, not even a bad interaction, just one where I wasn't very present with her. And it was clear because I was distracted and I was doing other things and I wasn't fully listening. And she came back to my room while I was listening to the book and said, said something to me about it, you know, asked me to be present with her. It made me feel like I've done this enough with her that she recognizes when I'm not there mm -hmm. and isn't afraid to come to me and say, look, I don't need you to solve anything right now. I really just need you to be here and listen to what I'm saying. Oh, it's so, so beautiful. It was like, oh, so yes. it took me, it took me kind of full circle and I, I stopped and I was there and I listened and yeah. apologized for not, um, not being present initially, which you've talked about that too, which I think is another important piece of this is that yeah. we are not perfect and we're going to make these mistakes and, you know, saying, I'm sorry to our children just models for them that it's okay for them to make mistakes and we can fix this. Beautiful. Yeah, exactly. And you know, Ed Tronick beautifully writes about this in a book he wrote with a colleague uh, called Power of Discord, which is that, you know, there, there is no such thing as perfect parenting, as you're saying. There's, we could say, you know, parental presence. But what that means is that when you identify ways you've goofed up and you're not present when you would rather have been, then instead of pretending like you weren't, you acknowledge, you know, I'm a human being you then make a reconnection, sometimes called a repair of a rupture, you know, and in that healing process of rejoining, your child is seeing you as a role model that, wow, you can mess up and yet you come back, acknowledge what you did, your responsibility for what you did and take two, let's do it again, you know, and why not, you know, and that teaches your child too, that they also can be human they also can recognize goof ups and ruptures and then make an effort to make a repair. And that's, that's basically when we talk about integration, that's what we mean. We can differentiate all these different things in our life and then also come back and link together 
And in many ways, that linking is what love is all about. Yeah. Now, as we talk about different interactions that we might have with our kids, I've found that it's relative to parents, that pain and worry and suffering is relative. It might be that your child is failing a class for the first time, or it might be that your child is doing something really dangerous or scary. For a parent, it can all be scary. So when it comes to behaviors that are really challenging, and and sometimes we see that, right, where it's where a parent is not in the place of just working on building this relationship and showing up, but they're actually faced with something really challenging. What kind of advice would you have for that parent? You know, uh, uh, in many ways, in small ways, but also big ways, I think that's a really powerful way of describing the challenge of parenting in general. There's always challenges, even, you know, as our kids get in their 20s and 30s, as as mine are, you know, So I would say this same notion of presence involves, if you think about it, you're developing the skill, not when things are really, really hard, but just in the quiet of the morning, let's say, when you're nurturing your own mind's capacity to become integrated, you have now developed this ability to distinguish hub from rim, just to say it that way. So now things are getting really tough. You got a lot of volatility up on your rim. You never lose the resource of your hub, no matter what's going on. I'm, I'm not going to say this to be like profound, trying to make you worry. But even when we face death, I've worked with people who are dying. They do the wheel of awareness. They learn to access the hub. And then even as they go into death, what before was terrifying them with panic, now they go into with peace and clarity. No one knows what happens after you die. But if people dying can face that moment of life with equanimity, having access to the hub and realizing that it's the sanctuary, I mean, I, I could give you example after example of people who do the Wheel of Awareness practice who then can understand how that is a resource. Literally, I know it's this is an ancient indigenous saying, it's an ancient contemplative saying. Uh, you hear it all the time, you think it's just meaningless, but it's very, very meaningful. The answer is within you. The hub is within you. And so what it's a matter of is not getting lost in the rim. You know, when we're in school, we're told to be certain, know the answers, know this, know that, know this, know that, you know, and you're rewarded over and over again for, you know, acquiring absolute certainty about things. So you say, here's the answer on the test. Here's my check to buy a car. Here's what I'm going to do. You know, so the hub is actually a place of openness and freedom that initially can feel that it's only uncertainty but yet what it is is possibility it's where all potentiality rests there's a whole hundred pages about that in the book aware so i won't get into it here but i'll just say that part of why people don't just naturally access this hub is that they're terrified of uncertainty. Now, when you're a parent, certainty has a quality that's associated with safety. Mm-hmm. You know, if I can be certain of this, my child will get into a good school and then they'll be guaranteed a job and they're gonna have a healthy, happy life. So of course, as parents, we want safety and we want certainty. And yet presence is dropping out of what uh, Rashid, the artist who has her quote, 
on the Brooklyn Public Library entryway, you know, having abandoned, and here's the phrase I love, the flimsy fantasy of certainty, mm. I decided to wander. Now, presence is really giving yourself permission to wander with curiosity and wonder with your child. Mm -hmm. To not pretend like you're going to have all the right answers and all the certainties, but just show up for them in that presence, which is maximal uncertainty, there is optimal freedom and choice. And so that's where as people do the wheel and start getting comfortable with this transition of interpreting this connection, open spaciousness and love as kind of terrifying because I'm not certain where's the safety, they actually learn that it's a place of incredible clarity. And you don't have to be in charge of everything. You just show up and you're present for everything. Yeah. That's beautiful. What it reminds me of is that there's there's a bit of a transition, I think, as a parent when they're very young and you and you are more in charge of some of the day-to-day -day things that you have to do to keep them safe. And then as they get older, you have to let go a little bit. You have to give a little bit of that um, freedom to them so they can grow into themselves. And ultimately, yep. you have to realize that you can't control their behavior. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, you know, you know, I tried to write this in the book called Brainstorm, which is for, you know, adolescents themselves to read and for their parents. And, you know, it was right when our daughter was, our youngest one was going off to college. And uh, I remember that feeling, you know, just it was like a, you know, a kaleidoscope going back in time. She was the little baby in the family. She was the young one. We had to protect her because she was the baby while our son was like four and a half and five all this stuff. And it was just so emotional, you know, to say, wow, oh, she's going off, you know, and you know, she's 27. Now she just completed the Appalachian Trail by herself at 2200 miles in the worst weather in parts of it that they had seen in 150 years. But I got to tell you, you know, knowing her and knowing what she's learned over these, you know, two over two dozen years of her life, that internal compass that showing up as a parent gives a child gives you a sense of breathing into it saying life is not certainty life is a journey of discovery and we want to be a not only a you know a safe haven for them where they come and they snuggle in and it's their safe harbor where everything's cool we also want to be a solid launching pad where they take off into the world and then as you're learning you know you can't control it it's like you know, this is the adventure of life. Right. And after they launch, they can always come back and, and seek help and support and guidance and love from you, right? Absolutely. So you've done a ton of things in your career. And and as I've, you know, looked over all of the stuff um, over the last few decades, I'm curious where you're going next. Like, what is the thing? I think it's interesting to know what's the thing you're most juiced or passionate about right now? Yeah. Well, you know, this latest book I wrote is a natural progression, I think, and identifies what I'm, you know, really focused on. I wake up every morning thinking about it. It's it's about how in modern times, what some people call Western culture, but it's really not Western anymore. It's just modern culture. You know, we've lost touch with the wisdom of indigenous teachings and contemplative uh, knowledge from self-reflection. Um, and from a scientific point of view, it really is about what is the self? You know, in, in earlier writings, I've spent a lot of time focusing on what is the mind. 
So this, la this last book called Intra-Connected is about what is the self? What is identity? What does it mean to have belonging in our lives? So those three things can be woven together. And, and you know, I think for facing the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, we're only going to conquer this if as individuals real, realize that uh, what we do individually has a big impact on the collective well-being of our whole society um, on the whole planet. But when we're facing other pandemics, not just a viral pandemic, like the pandemic of racism and social injustice, those are also you know, ways where we are excessively differentiated from one another saying my in-group is better than your in-group and you know we're going to we're going to marginalize and dehumanize your group because our group is better we can't live like that anymore on earth and we don't need to even though we may have a vulnerability to do in-group out-group distinction especially under threat so that's another way where self-identity and belonging are shaping our well-being you know, and then things like, you know, the polarization we're experiencing or the addiction to screens that people have. And a final pandemic besides all those, you know, is environmental destruction, that the self that's defined as separate in many ways is the source of the destruction of our biodiversity because we think humanity is better than other species. So, um, you know, it's my both wish and my thinking as a, a scientist that, you know, how modern culture defines the self, what features we use to identify who we are and how we experience belonging, whether it's really constricted or widened up, will make the difference in the next 10 years as to whether humanity gets its acts together and we act together so that our children don't live in a nightmare of a planet or not. Yeah. You know, as Christiana Figuera says, you know, in her wonderful book, it's a future we choose, you know, it's really up to us. And so my small contribution is to say how we construct a self which is a mind process that is shared in our culture. And if we continue to construct a self that's separate, then life on earth is in grave danger. Mm -hmm. And the book tries to show all the developmental phases from before birth to all throughout maturity of our opportunities to see a much broader self, um, a really a wider identity and a and much broader belonging, you know, that I think the future of life on earth depends on. Mm. Thank you for that. Well, this has been a really fun conversation and um, how would people reach out to you or get more information about what you're up to? Yeah, well, you can, you know, come do some parenting stuff or just see what we're up to. Uh, there's two websites they are linked. Um, one is my name with the DR in front of it for Dr. Dr. Dan Siegel, Dr. Dan Siegel at um, .com. And uh, then the other one would be um, Mind Sight Institute. So M-I-N-D for mind and then sight, S-I-G-H-T and institute.com. Those are interlinked websites that get you all sorts of resources, videos, all sorts of things you can do. There are courses you can take if you choose to, books you can tap into, all sorts of stuff to improve and enhance your deep understanding of what it means to be human. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you for having me. Thanks for all your wonderful work.
Um, before we go, I'd like to say a few things. I want to thank our sponsors, the Hope Coalition of Boulder County, Zia Consulting, Premier Members Credit Union, and the Sartell Bliss at Coldwell Bankers Group. Um, also, if you're interested in the work we're doing at the Parent Engagement Network, you can go to our website, which is www.penbv.org. From there, you'll see that we're doing our annual stress and anxiety symposium again this year. It's going to be virtual. It's on January 29th and 30th. And you'll also have an opportunity to donate or become a sponsor of our organization. So we hope that today's conversation has filled your parenting well, and you've gotten some insights and information that you can take back into your life. Um, until next time, happy parenting. <laughs>